Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 38 of The Fourth Wall. I am your host, Griffin Schiller, and this is the show where we break down the fourth wall of the film industry as we get an inside look through our conversations with industry professionals ranging from writers, directors, actors, you name it. This show is, of course, part of the Playlist Podcast Network, where you can find the rest of our amazing show catalog. We're talking shows like The Playlist Podcast, Be Real, and so much more. Whatever your fix is, we definitely have you covered over there, so consider subscribing to the podcast feed. You'll also uh, get new episodes of The Fourth Wall whenever they drop, and we all know that that's a great podcast that you should be listening to every time we have new episodes. For those of you who may be unaware, HBO's Westworld is legitimately one of my favorite shows of all time. I, I've loved it from that incredible first season all the way through the, the, the three-season arc that we have, and I think it is just such a fascinating and uh, thought-provoking piece of television that manages to grip me with each episode. And so when I found out that I was going to be talking with today's guest, uh, I was over the moon excited because I've been such a big fan of her work. I mean, even dating back to some of the stuff she did on shows like Burn Notice and Pushing Daisies. And now she is finally stepping into the world of feature filmmaking and it is long overdue. Uh, I'm so thrilled to be able to bring you all my chat with Lisa Joy. Her feature directorial debut is called Reminiscence, and it's from a Blacklist certified screenplay written by Joy and purchased all the way back in 2013. We see Joy back in her established wheelhouse of science fiction, but this time it's a little bit more of a noir, and so obviously comparisons can be made to uh, Blade Runner. I saw uh, you know elements of the, the big sleep in there, but basically the film stars Hugh Jackman as Nick Bannon a private investigator of the mind in Miami who helps clients recover lost memories using a machine that brings the memories themselves to life. With an eight-year gap from the screenplay's purchase to the release of the final product, there's potential for the script to radically change naturally, but in the case of Reminiscence, it didn't really change that much except for some of the world building, which I, I found to be fascinating. Joy had an idea, a very clear vision, uh, and she was able to bring that to life in such an immersive way. She turns Miami into this dystopian city where the, the oceans have sort of overrun it a bit, and she uses a lot of water imagery uh, and beautifully ties it back into the representation of memory. There is a lot going on in this film. A lot of interesting human ideas and philosophies to consider the role that nostalgia plays in our society, what memory sort of means to us, how we can sort of become captive to it uh, instead of living in the present. I think... Much as the case with Joy's previous work, she's tackling deep philosophical themes, and uh, this film does that through uh, the the framework of a, a very classic old school noir. However, 
she does things that manages to subvert the tropes of noir uh, in a very interesting way. And over the course of this conversation, we really get into the philosophy of the film, what she was going through in her personal life uh, that caused her to tackle these sort of um, threads. And I mean, listen, if, if you watch Westworld or really any of her other work, you'll notice that there is sort of a, uh, a through line here about the, the kind of things she's interested in, uh, in covering. And so that definitely comes through in Reminiscence. Uh, we talk about constructing the world, some of her directing techniques that she picked up uh, from her time on Westworld. Uh, we talk about Westworld as a series because obviously it's one of my favorite shows of all time, might be my favorite show of all time, and uh, I want to know uh, where they're going to go next. So we get into a little bit of that, uh, touch on Blade Runner a bit, and then also just like... Joy as a person, which I think might have been my favorite aspect of this conversation. She was very forthcoming with her work um, and how she infuses the things she's interested in into that work in a very personal way. I think I can honestly say by the end of this conversation, I just had a better understanding of who she is uh, and, and the kind of things that she's fascinated by and that drives her and that might have been the biggest joy, no pun intended, of this conversation. As I mentioned at the top, I'm a big, big fan of her brand of storytelling and I hope following reminiscence that we're going to see more of her not only on the big screen but in uh, different realms as well. Obviously her and her husband Jonathan Nolan are working on the Fallout series so there's a lot of interesting projects that uh, she has in store for us in the near future. But the most important thing is, is that Reminiscence arrives in theaters and on HBO Max on August 20th. I can't recommend seeing it enough. I really enjoyed it. I think if you're a fan of classic film noir, there's going to be a lot uh, to dig here. Listen, uh... Rebecca Ferguson and Hugh Jackman especially are great in this film. Um, so if you can go see it in a theater, if you can go see it in IMAX on the big screen, uh, you won't regret it. It is a it is a solid time at the movies. But enough from me. Let's get into this thing. I loved this conversation so much, and I hope you all do as well. Here it is, my chat with the incredible Lisa Joy. I guess... Where I want to start with this is, it's actually interesting. I've, I've gotten a chance to see the film twice now because I think I saw in, I, or not even think, I think, I saw an early cut of the film back in April for, I, I, I guess, like a reaction or a test screening or something like that. Um, and I haven't been able to stop thinking about it since. And then I, I recently saw it a couple, couple weeks ago. And if, if it was even possible, I liked it even more on rewatch and picked up on, on a lot of things that I missed that first time around. Oh, but yeah, no, of course. I, and I'm, I'm a big fan of your work, uh, like across, you know, television as well. So getting to see you make the jump to a feature film is something I've been I've been waiting for for a long time. And I think you did a excellent job. But I, I do kind of want to start sort of like with the origins of this, because I, I read that this was a script that was on the blacklist and it was purchased back in uh, 2013. Uh, and obviously we're now in 2021 there's a large gap there how much of the original story changed uh over over the course of when it was originally on the blacklist to now when we're seeing it uh not that much i don't think um except for you know some of the world building when i was when i was just writing it as a as a writer it was set in new york mm. uh and i didn't know i'd never sold a feature before and I was just trying to make it 
kind of manageable to make. Uh, so there was far less world building. It was a smaller film. Uh, and then when I attached myself as a director, I just went for it. I, I, I knew that the way that I had seen the film was to have this kind of greater scope. And I'd always wanted to shoot a noir in Miami and to deal with um, the, the idea of water encroaching upon the land, much in the way I think uh, memory is effaced by time. You know, there's something about... Yeah. Uh, natural forces undoing all the edifices that we try so hard to construct. Yeah, it's it's really interesting that you bring that up because I just saw The Green Knight last week and The Green Knight deals with very similar themes of just like, you know, the the like man trying to uh you know put nature under its thumb in a way that like is un, is impossible and then like obviously after everything is sort of said and done nature is the thing that prevails. So just watching those two films back to back it was really just sort of interesting uh, to see that sort of uh, thing tackled in a way that I don't think we've seen before. Where did this sort of fascination with um, th- these these higher concepts, like you know, philosophy, blending philosophy and and genre thrills and stuff like that, um, in across multiple genres, where did that fascination originate from? I think that's just always been my personality. You know, okay. yeah, yeah. Uh, I was always. Um, very bookish and pretty introverted. Uh, so I grew up reading a lot, uh, a lot of mysteries, a lot of uh, mythology, uh, a lot of poetry. Mm. Uh, I, I just loved it since I was a kid. And so I think, you know, in reading poetry, it gets one thinking philosophically minded in a way, right? Because it's not so didactic. It just kind of opens a portal for contemplation a lot of the time and so perhaps that's where some of the philosophical bend comes from mm-hmm. but I also think you know I think all humans are philosophical creatures it's just we're so busy you know uh, mm-hmm. just surviving day-to-day life there's not often that much time for contemplation beyond when am I going to make the kids for dinner you know and 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 I speak for myself when when I say that um the luxury of having my day job being a thing where I'm actually working by contemplating stuff is I do get to uh, chase down those thoughts that I think that I think a lot of people have. They're all all the same thoughts through all of time. You know, yeah. it's not like we're thinking about themes that the ancient Greeks weren't thinking about. Uh, so, so it's uh, one of the perks of the job is that I get to indulge those kind of thoughts. Yeah. Well, and and I think especially. Well, I mean, we're still in it, but loosely, you know, sort of coming out of a time where that element, the, those distractions, the the outside world was sort of stripped away from us. Yeah. Uh, I almost feel like that that allowed for so many more of us to really contemplate all these things that, like you said, is just a natural part of of human nature. And so in a way, I do feel like your film is coming out at at the perfect time, even if, you know, the, these are sort of like universal themes that uh you know, go back to, you know, like you said, like the ancient Greeks and stuff. Yeah, I, I, I do think that the last couple of years and everything that's happened have forced a lot of people to take stock and sit back because we've had no choice. You know, that the busyness that I mentioned before mm-hmm. has um, gone away for a while for some people because there was there was nowhere to go you know we had to go home after 
if we were working, we had to go straight home to work and we couldn't see our loved ones as much. We can see our friends as much. I think one of the things that it did was make people take stock of how have I been spending my days and have they been well spent? Mm. And what do I miss the most? And when we emerge from this, what will I appreciate more? Um, and those are all themes of the film as well, you know, because yeah. with memory and alienation and the things that we want to hold on to forever, the things we really value. Yeah, well, that just uh, one of my favorite lines in the film comes towards the end when May says, you know, we drown ourselves looking for something better uh, if we could just sort of like hold on. And I think that's exactly sort of like what you're you're touching on. Um and like you were saying, like, I, I noticed these these threads of like idealization of romanticism, um, you know, and the, the objectivity of women, the comfort of pre-established class structures, uh, you know, even the media we consume to some extent. Uh, wh what was out of like all of those ideas, what for you was the main uh, thing that you wanted to talk about just in terms of like, like all, all the things that, that you're sort of ta tackling in the film? Well... I mean, there were there were so many different facets um, to what I was trying to deal with, but but one of them is the very idea of intimacy and love, you know, and it's wrapped in science fiction and a kind of thriller, mystery, noir. But the heart of it, the the thing that is driving everything, is this idea of of love and of knowing someone, you know, the line between infatuation and obsession and uh, true intimacy. Hmm. And I, I was thinking when I was making this that noir relies so heavily on tropes, right? Um, and they're classic, awesome, entertaining tropes. Yes, right? yeah. And Al walks in and you know exactly what she's up to. She's no good. And then there's the, you know, nice girl waiting in the corner who's probably not going to fare that well, probably not going to make off with the hero. Um, and the hero is this laconic, masculine fella who's uh, always does the right thing. Um, the same as in Westworld, you know, Westerns have these really um, entrenched tropes. And, and in both of those projects, what I tried to do was take the trappings of them and then subvert them and, mm -hmm. and look a little deeper, which I think is also what the story is about between Bannister and May. It's, did you know her? How can you claim to love someone if you don't see all of them yet, if you're only holding on to one part of them. And, you know, when I first enlisted Hugh in this, um, you know, I was, I was telling him, like, you know, you're a huge movie star, you are very handsome, you're great at action, and you're so likable. And in this, you know, you're this lead, but you're not necessarily a hero, you know, yeah. because no one is just purely heroic. You know, his character goes on an odyssey and it, and it can get dark, you know, as he's, he's looking for someone, the most pure, pure of motives, right? And every film is, oh, I'm looking for the girl. I'm going to get the girl. Right, right. At what point does that quest actually say more about your own needs and your own blindness than it does about your love for the girl, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's something that Tandaway's character is often trying to tell Hugh's character, you know, what do you really see? What are you really chasing? Are you chasing someone that you really see or are you chasing a vacancy in yourself that you long to fill? And, you know, for me, I, I had this talk um, with my DP 
about lens use, right? And the way I said it was infatuation is a long lens and love is a wide lens up close and personal, you know, mm -hmm. because, and, and we use that uh, to shoot the film itself, you know? So when he first sees May at the bar, we're using this long lens. So he gets to stand from far away and behold her and, you know, a long lens can bring you close, but it kind of makes everything really beautiful and proportionate, right? Almost like a glossy magazine. Yeah. So that's one kind of beauty, but it's beauty observed from far away. And to me, that's infatuation, right? Because you're kind of smoothing over the rough edges and make everything perfect. And then love for me is when you circle someone's face up close on this wide lens. It's a little bit distorted. It's a little bit too intimate. Like, our own gazes when we're up close and personal looking at the person we love you know lying next to us we don't see things uh, like we do from afar and and mm. to me that gaze that up close and personal gaze that is not necessarily as beautiful in the centerfold way but is more beautiful in that intimate way in which the specificities of a face and even its flaws are made beautiful um that's the kind of uh, disparity in in gazes and in conceptions of lust versus love that I was interested in in exploring. Yeah, for sure. And that that's I'm, the 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 what you just brought up about the lenses was something that like I definitely couldn't have told you that you did that when I was like watching it. But it was like you you're watching the film and you're like feeling you're definitely feeling that sort of like evolution of. Yeah, what starts as sort of infatuation kind of transitions into love in, in these certain moments. I, I'm curious, when how did you want to apply that uh, notion, that, that sort of idea, to memory too, right? Because memory can be a little bit hazy, it can be romanticized, and it's not really the truth. Um, so, like, how did you want to differentiate, you know... I, I guess these like these fantasies versus versus like, you know, what what is actually sort of there? Yeah, I mean, we approach memory from kind of two different vantage points in the film, right? There's this machine that Hugh Jackman's character has, this kind of reminiscence machine where he brings the memory to life in its set, in its in its location, right? And that's mm -hmm. how he he kind of circles it and looks for clues from that moment in time. Uh, and that to me, you know, that, that's what the machine is capable of, of recreating the objective details of a memory by kind of plumbing the deep recesses of one's mind and, and, and simulating them in this machine. Yeah. And that's how Hugh's character and Watts' character um, learn things and witness things that the person in the memory may have missed themselves. It's in the uh, peripheral vision as, as, as they talk about it of the memory, right? Right. Because when they're experiencing the memory that's when we went from the lenses that we used in the hologos right which were um for the machine which were kind of uh they were just more proscenium views of it right these wide things where the staging had to stay for reasons of it being in a hologram um somewhat somewhat uh wide and fixed showing the whole scene but then in every memory we also went handheld for uh, the person in the tank, for the person experiencing mm -hmm. the memory and had this really organic way of filming and catching the light inside so that we could see how they were feeling as they relived the memory, the 
the subject subjective sense that they would have within it. Mm-hmm. So we were made we made sure it was like suffused with light and it's kind of the faster cuts of the way when one experiences memory, it's these like little flashes sometimes that we get and nowhere near as objective in its presentation, but far more sensual and organic feeling. Mm, okay. Yeah, no, I, I definitely got that. And I, for sure, the, the ob- sort of objective view of the, the whole thing and like you kind of scouring the room. And then also like, I know there are lines in the film that sort of, um, you know, hit on this, but like how Hugh is sort of able to objectively view one's uh, memory because he is so far removed. But then when it comes to his own, you know, recollection of things, he is very, uh, he, he does have this like ideal view of like what those interactions were like. Um, and then I, that's, that's part of what I like about Watts is she really puts things into perspective and like, isn't afraid to call him out on those, those sort of like, you know, him not being able to take his own advice basically yeah yeah absolutely watts was the voice of reason and the kind of moral compass i think for um so much of the film i I know that uh when i was you know when when you're writing something i think you have to relate to all the characters and i did you know every single one from the villains to the heroes didn't matter the male characters the female characters you know I, i i had to find a piece of myself in all of them you know certainly as a woman i know what it's like to um feel like May's character, right? Where you walk into a room and based on what you're wearing, people make a thousand assumptions about who you are, right? Uh, I know what it's like to feel the anguish of, you know, love and desire, like like Hugh's character, to want to be noble, um, to to fight for the things that you love. And and I also know very well, and especially then, uh, what Tanaway's character was feeling. She's a uh, she's got this maternal streak, you know, and, Mm. and she is forward looking and she has her own demons and such, but she tries to uh, sort of soldier on and and be brave. And I think there's a real nobility in that. Yeah. Well, and I'm kind of curious. I mean, you mentioned obviously with her being a a parent and whatnot, and then you also being a parent, how much of your own experience, uh, you know, having children and, and being a parent now sort of played into how you approached uh, some of the aspects of this film and specifically the, the characters? Um, well, you know, it's funny because when I wrote the film, I was still pregnant. I didn't, I hadn't had the child yet. Um, but by the time I shot the film, I then had two children. So that, you know, mm-hmm. to show the passage of time there. I think for me, it made the idea of memory and the value of time all the more precious. You know, I I remember so clearly when my daughter was born, this was a couple months after the script sold, I would just, you know, you're delirious and tired and you're going crazy and, uh, you know, you're leaving the stove on and I would always leave my cell phone in the fridge for some reason that I don't know. Uh, But I was basically brain dead because of exhaustion, right? I'm not sure I believe in like mommy brain or whatever, but I I do know that exhaustion brain definitely struck for a few a few weeks at least and in the middle of the sleepless nights I would hold my daughter in my arms and I would like smell her little head like babies have this very specific delicious smell to them and it goes away right Mm. It, it fades I don't know when the mark is that it fades but by like a year it's gone and you can't bottle it and I would smell that sweet baby smell and I would read her poetry 
there's this poem by Billy Collins, I would read her called Velocity um, about the passage of time. And I remember thinking, if I could go back one day, if I had to go back, if I was lucky enough to go back to one of these moments, right? Because aging is difficult, right? You know, if you, if you get to live a long time, you outlive people that you love and, um, and it can be lonely. And um, if you don't have that luxury, well, I guess it doesn't matter anyway. Um, but, you know, I know that when I look back in the future, the moments that everybody makes a big deal about, you know, um, your graduation or bachelor party or whatever it was, right? <laughs> that you're supposed to be like, that was the best day ever. I don't, I don't think those are the moments that I'd want to revisit. They're those quiet moments, right? They're, they're just those moments when you're perfectly contented with the world and, and even the smallest little elements of it um, just strike you as magical. And, and those moments aren't dependent upon what you do for a living or, you know, how fancy you are or how rich or famous you are. I think there's something very elemental about the moments that matter for all of us. The yeah. most, most precious moments are moments we spend with the ones we love or doing something that we love or just enjoying the world in a really pure way. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you, you have lines in the film that talk about there's, there's nothing more addictive than the past. Do you, would you say that it is those, those moments reliving those, those small instances again and again, that is that sort of that addiction or is it the, the general sense of nostalgia, I guess, because I think there, there, there is a difference between uh, the two. I think people have a tendency to be overly nostalgic about an idea rather than things that they've personally experienced those little moments like what you were talking about you know yeah i mean i it's 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 a funny thing because at, at one point too rebecca's um character says you know maybe it's good to forget because uh, i'm gonna paraphrase i don't remember the exact line but you know because if you remember the good things that you might never live up to it again and if you remember yeah. all the bad things then you know you'll never get over it and so memory is lovely it's a way of time travel that we can all experience, but we can't live there. The spaceship does not hold. And, and maybe that's a good reason why memory does organically fade, why the machine does not exist. You know, we cannot hold ourselves in a perfect simulation of the past. Mm -hmm. um, and I do think that if you do think you're experiencing a perfect simulation of the past, it's probably a sign that you are making something up, you know, yeah. that you have overly idealized a moment so much that you've turned it into a story. Because if you fictionalize something and make it into a story, it's much easier to hold in your mind. It's not a living, breathing, complex thing uh, that you can't fathom the full dimension of. It's just um, a moment that you've reduced to a story and probably over-idealized or over-villainized. Yeah, that's a that's a great point. And, and I wonder, like, you know, because obviously the, the, the notion of nostalgia is, I mean, everyone's nostalgic about different things obviously we come it comes in different ways like 80s nostalgia is huge at one point 90s is big now um and especially with just like the pandemic people being locked in have nothing i i mean like it's it's very natural for someone to want to look back to a point in time where maybe 
they think it was better or just like where they were more free or whatnot. Um, and that's a big part of the film for sure that you explore beautifully. Uh, but for us as like human beings, how do we sort of monitor that intake of like, you know, nostalgia or, or memory and not drown ourselves in it? Like we see so many characters in this, in this film do. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think we all got to keep a little bit of Watts inside us, right? Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, I have my memories. I have things I cherish and things I regret, but I got to move forward. I mean, I know for me, um, I think the way I stayed sane, hopefully during the pandemic was um, by trying new things, you know? And of course I couldn't go out anywhere, but I, I mean, I tried a host of new things. I tried whittling. I did embroidery, taught myself the guitar. I took oh, wow. up painting. I just went crazy. Yeah hobbies because otherwise I would just sit there and think about you know what could have been or what once was and it got depressing I I would reach out to I wrote fan letters to writers that I liked <laughs> that's amazing <laughs> up, like a conversation I got to be pen pals with Ishiguro that was exciting wow. you know um so I, I I don't know but as someone who uh can certainly over romanticized moments. I think a lot of writers can, can do that. Uh, the antidote to that for me is taking the moment that I'm in and saying, you know, how do I enliven this? What can I do? Who can I reach out to? Um, what can I learn? Yeah. Yeah, for sure. That's, that's so just to see the various things. I mean, I think that, but that's, that's healthy, right? You know, like it is good to like dwell on those good moments, but like, how do you keep yourself, uh active sharp you know keep yourself from like going insane in a time where it's like you're so confined um which it actually just sort of that just reminded me of the the episode of westworld you directed with with james delos and he's just kind of stuck in that time loop in the room yeah. doing the same routine over and over yeah. again uh and now yeah. we've all lived it so we get it i know, <laughs> you know? well he starts to go crazy in the middle he starts yeah. dancing and there's a masturbation scene which is yeah. all funny because it was all i i didn't script any of that i knew i wanted to do it but i didn't i i wanted to make sure he felt comfortable doing it so i asked him that morning i was like how would you feel about uh and he, I mean, he is such an amazing actor yeah. uh, that he was just like, I mean, let's do it. So it that's, was wow. Okay. That's interesting. Cause I, I didn't even know that like half of that stuff was improvised, but I guess it sort of makes sense, right? You're just sort it, of like, sir, you're following him throughout a day in his life. And so whatever feels most natural to him, I guess. Right. It was, it wasn't improvised in that I knew that I wanted it, but I didn't want to write it in the script because it's sensitive stuff. It's like, right. he has to do things that's like, he's alone. Right. And, and it's, you know, masturbating on screen cannot possibly be um, the easiest thing to do, you know? So I wanted to make sure instead of just writing on the page that I had a conversation with him first and made sure that he would feel comfortable doing it, you know? Cause once it's on the play page, it's almost like you're saying, we're gonna do this. And <laughs> yeah. when it's uh, more sensitive stuff like that because I hadn't had a chance to talk to him yet, uh, no. we had a little private, private caucus beforehand <laughs> we was down and it was some of my funnest stuff i just want the outtakes of him dancing in that room uh that 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 in itself was a huge pleasure to watch <laughs> yeah i know i i have to imagine i what so what did you i mean this is probably a very pedestrian question but i guess from your you know experience directing that episode what were like the big things that you learned that you wanted to sort of carry over um into reminiscence because i mean it, it's not an episode of television, but it, I, obviously with how cinematic something like Westworld is, I have to imagine a lot of it can translate well to a feature. Yeah, I mean, I I knew that 
there are certain types of images and, and, and things that I find pleasing. I, I learned a lot about my directorial style, I suppose, which is, you know, before I even start prep, I normally have the whole movie kind of cut together in my head. Oh, and okay. So I start doing these things. Whenever I walk the crew through a location, I basically act out and pre-block everything and talk about where everything should go. And I also tend to talk about not just like the lens choice and, you know, where things are going and, you know, what the technical aspects of it. But I really like to talk through with the entire crew, the emotional feeling and intent behind the scene. Because I think of my collaborators in TV and film, not as just these kind of piecemeal um, artists who do one thing. I, I really think that we become a kind of collective organism and that we should all be telling the same story and have a sense of the breadth and intent of that story. Uh, because when you feel like you're a part of the whole, which you are when, when you're in a film, um, I think the results are better. I think you feel more invested. I think it feels more like a family and like a team. You know, you're all yeah. building a world together. It's a very romantic notion. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I I want to kind of go into some of the the again some of the more filmmaking aspects of it, specifically with how you're using the framework work of noir to sort of explain this. And and I think we we sort of touched on this a little bit earlier. But one of the things that I loved so much about watching this was just like getting to see you play within the confines of like, you know, classic noir tropes, but yet you did so in a way that, I mean, like you, like you said earlier, you, you subverted them and whatnot. But one of the ones that really stuck out to me was the use of uh, narration. Um, and I know you're a big Blade Runner fan. Uh, so I, I have to ask, you know, is this sort of like an inkling as to which kind of like cut you, you prefer of that film? Do you like the narration <laughs> in, in that original Blade Runner? I mean, I, I think, I, I think that narration can be really helpful at, at times. Um, and, you know, I look, Blade Runner, I, I can't, I, I'm going to stay out of the Blade Runner debate. I think <laughs> every aspect of it is um, sure, yeah, yeah. incredible. You know, I tend to, I tend to always, you know, side with the director's intent, but, um, but, uh, you know, for, for this, what was really important to me was that the narration be um, necessary, that mm -hmm. the conceit of the film um, would allow it to um, make sense, that it wasn't just narration for narration's sense. Um, yeah. And so that was part of um, what went into the logic of, of incorporating it in the way that I did. Well, and, and just like on the topic of narration in general, I think that's a tool you also use very well in uh, West Westworld. You know, you, you circumvent a lot of the uh, exposition and, and whatnot, or, or and even like how the characters are feeling through this. And you, you use it in very purposeful ways where I think some of the like lesser noirs or the lesser detective stories like the the narration is literally just there to exposit what's going on um and so how do you how do you sort of like pick your moments when you want to use that tool because i i do agree it is a very effective tool and i think in this film specifically it's just very it, it, it's almost like immersive you know 
Uh, thank you. Well, you know, when you have Hugh Jackman's voice available, uh, <laughs> good idea to use it. Uh, yeah. no, I, you know, I, I, it is that thing where narration is tricky because for some people there will never be enough. And for some people there will always be too much, you know, mm -hmm. there is a very fine line and there's always going to be people on both sides of it. Um, uh, so I, I did the best I could to tell the story in the way that I thought made sense. And for me, you know, I can't because of spoilers and stuff, but I, it right. was very important to me that it not just be random narration, that there be conceit underpinning it. And of course, it's also homage to, you know, the classic noir trope. I just wanted to take that um, stylistic device and make sure that it was foundationally grounded in the film. Yeah. And in the same, in Westworld, we don't really have voiceover, uh, strictly speaking, so much in, in Westworld, but we do have a lot of like uh, prelapse and such where one person's voice carries us to the other in dialogue um, for transitions. And the other thing that I find really useful and really fun are the diagnostics in Westworld, right? Mm -hmm. Where the characters are um, uh, basically interrogated and the hosts have to switch from persona to persona. I just love doing that because you can get out so many different elements of information, but also character, like literally peeling back affect after affect and seeing how they differ. Yeah. And it's kind of like scrolling back the super ego, the ego and the id, if you were to ask a human these questions. And so, you know, for me, it's, it's, it's always every, every film, everything has a bit of explaining to do. There's always exposition. The question right. is, does it feel like exposition or can you find a way to artfully make it integral to the story itself and make it natural to the story itself? And it's 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 a it's a big struggle for for all writers. Yeah, well, for sure. I mean, like that's something you hear people talk about all the time. Is just like exposition wasn't necessary, etc. And I mean, that's something that's. I mean, I, just from the writers, I know that's one of the areas that they struggle with most. Is just like, am I explaining enough? Do I need to explain more? Um, I think weirdly enough, some of the films that do it the best are like the Harry Potter films because they they do a, just a great job of immersing you in that world. Everything's like so. Uh, purposeful so and and I guess for you how do you what for you sort of like crosses that line into becoming too much exposition ver versus uh too little how do you know that you've sort of hit that sweet spot I I mean it, it, it truly is it's very hard to know it, it, it normally I can tell that I'm not going to be able to do better when as many people love it and want more as people hate it and want less <laughs> and I'm like oh I'm probably achieved neutral buoyancy in uh voiceover um but you know for me especially with voiceover and exposition it's a thing that helps the most when I'm writing to put something away for a couple days and read it afresh with fresh eyes as they say mm -hmm. and that's when I catch more of my exposition because right after you've written it it's hard to spot you have you have goggles on or something but give it a week or two and all of a sudden it looks you know it looks like you're the outfit you wore in the 80s you feel like oh my <laughs> god what was I thinking I thought that was flattering um yeah and you know but 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 goodness I mean I don't know about other writers I I have a very hard time and and do not tend to reread or rewatch or watch anything that I've done um unless I have to for professional reasons because I, I find it just mortifying and agonizing. Uh it's I just see um I don't know. I just it's it's terrifying to me. I just run away. 
Yeah, well, that that sort of just got me thinking about like the world of television versus the world of of like you know feature filmmaking. Because you know, as as a feature filmmaker, once you've released the film, that's sort of basically the end of it. You don't go back and retouch it unless there's like a director's cut or whatever. Right, but with right. television, like it's such a growing piece of uh, art, and it's it's still evolving. Um, and not only are you trying to satisfy like your creativity and tell the story that you want to tell, but like there are so many outside influences coming at you over the course of a season from like, you know, ratings, reviews, the weekly discourse. So how do you how do you balance your creative vision with all of that feedback? Um, and I mean, are there are there even instances where like, you know, you're halfway through a season and you have to like sort of make changes to the latter half of that? I I, I think I work very differently to um uh, some people, but I, I don't read press. I don't look at ratings or reviews. And, um, I, um, I'm like, I'm basically a hermit, you know, I have no idea how I can sometimes glean from it based on like, whether people are giving me pitying or, you know, exultant looks, you know, I'm like, Oh God, something must be going bad. People Mm -hmm. must hate this. Um, uh, but you know, for, for me, I don't, I can't, uh, I just don't think I can, I can live in that world because I think I would constantly be thinking about it. Um, and yeah. it would probably make me choke. Like I, I, I think my best metric for my own performance is like, did I do the best I could, you know? Um, and, um, and were, were my collaborators happy? Were they fulfilled, you know? And there are definitely times when I, I myself, I'm like, that was not, the best work you could have done. Like you were too tight on time. You didn't, you know, like I, I regret this with fresh eyes. I remember that. And I think I could have done better. I could have made better choices. I, I feel like I am my own harshest critic in that way. And, and, um, and, and that's, that's, that's a lot of, uh, that's a lot of criticism that I can heap no, on. Oh yeah. Uh, so, yeah. so I tend to go that way. And, you know, I also have the benefit of a writer's room and a team and everything. And so I have these pluralistic ideas and voices that help um, help broaden my parameters and thinking and expectations and, um, and hopes for, for my own, my own writing, you know, Uh, I'm constantly learning from people. Yeah, for sure. Um, going back into reminiscence a little bit, you, you kind of, you pose this notion that, uh, every character in the film is like haunted by something and even like something like time, the past is haunted by us as people, which I, that, that's such an interesting, like, uh, philosophy that I had never really thought about before. Um, I, I guess before I go into my other question, where does where did that sort of like philosophy originate from, and is that something that you've always viewed in relation to memory? You know, it, it was literally one of those things where I was trying to figure out the opening voiceover, and I was like, <laughs> okay, yeah. "What do I do?" And I was imagining the past, you know, and 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 how they do say the past can haunt man, and that is of course like the traditional way into it, the past can haunt a man and we're all haunted by the past, right? Mm-hmm. And I started to think about, okay, well, when I think about the past, how is it haunting me? And yes, yeah, sure, it plagues you by replaying in the mind sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. But when I think about that event itself, that event is doing nothing. That event is just where it is in the space-time continuum existing. Mm-hmm. And if if there's somebody in this picture who doesn't belong there, it's the ghostly vision of me peering around the corners and looking at it and wandering around and examining it, you know? And, and so I was like, oh, it's not, it's not the past that's haunting me. I'm, I'm haunting it. I'm the one disturbing its 
ground and treading into its time. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, and then I guess my 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 second question to that uh, would be, yeah, like all all of these characters are are haunted by by different things. Obviously, if it's a too personal of a question, what what are the things that sort of that do you think haunt yourself in in maybe in more of a career sense than maybe a personal sense? Hmm, that's a good question. Um, the thing, one of the things that haunts me, ironically, is my horrible memory right mm. so it's not like um i have or again i i don't know if it's that i i have too high expectations of memory or that i have a horrible memory but i'm always scared of being an unreliable narrator to my own past experiences Interesting. You know? um and it's why i also don't write um you know uh, consciously kind of autobiographical confessional things, why I like working in genre, you know, because mm-hmm. uh, people can extrapolate from, you know, what you write about, about yourself and such. And, and you know, for me, it's like, I, when I think about my childhood, you know, the, the slights and burdens and neuroses and fights that I had with people and the relationships I had, you know, I could demonize all sorts of people, but can I really really know what it was like can i really stand outside myself and not and fully understand my participation in the events that i regret you know what i mean or the events where i felt like oh this terrible thing happened to me it's very very hard and i'm a very um hard critic of my own objectivity in memory which i think Mm -hmm. is why it's such a it's such a theme for me you know um uh, so I, I think that's one of the things that really bugs me, you know, is that I can't, I couldn't write a, an autobiography if I tried. I would have no idea what to write because I wouldn't know, I wouldn't be comfortable enough with, you know, the, the standard for truth and my ability to achieve it. The closest mm. I can come to objective truth is metaphorical fiction. <laughs> Yeah, that's, uh, I, I think that, I mean, that was really insightful because it just got me thinking, I was like, oh, this is, this is probably why you're, you're so drawn to these, these kinds of stories that, that deal with memory and that and, and whatnot. So that's, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, I, I do have to start wrapping it up here, but I, if, if you'll indulge me, just one more question. Um, I'm a massive Westworld fan and I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the future of the show. Um, I, I think I remembered when you first started that you said it would be like a five season arc. Um, and I'm curious if that's still true and then what you might have in store for us in, you know, in terms of like season four and, and going forward. Oh yeah. I mean, I'm not, okay. So my husband isn't here and he's always the one who like, is like, don't say this or say that. And I'm the, <laughs> I'm the like loose lips that sink ships in terms of Westworld spoilers. So I have to be very careful. Sure. Um, uh, so I will say we know how Westworld ends, um, but oh. right now I'm focusing on uh, the fourth season and we are shooting right now. Um, it's very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and there will be, uh, I don't know how to say this. I mean, there's <laughs> some new world situation coming on that I'm very excited about. I might get in trouble. By, but I'm married to the person who would be mad at me. So there's really not much he can do. You know, I yeah. have children, for goodness sakes. 
Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I the, just the fact that you have an ending in sight is really uh, just comforting to me because I'm like, okay, so they know how they're going to wrap this thing up. That's that's all I want. I want a finite ending to this thing. I don't yeah. want it to just... There is a finite out. ending and we wanted it to, um, you know, we were exploring certain themes and like philosophical ideas um, and we had this grand scale and this, uh, of time and these extraordinary actors to do it with. And so, mm-hmm. um, so we thought it would only be fair to know exactly where we were going. Does this mean that Hugh Jackman may make an appearance in Westworld? Well, that is an enticing thought. <laughs> um, hmm, let's see. Well, okay. Well, I'll have to next time I see him, I'll I'll hit him up. <laughs> All right. Well, just the prospect of that gets me very, uh, very excited. You know, uh, I will say that you may see some reminiscence Westworld crossover, though. Oh, uh, okay. All right. All right. I like that. I like that. Um, right now. <laughs> perfect perfect uh listen lisa thank you so much for your time uh for the conversation i have thoroughly enjoyed this and also i i really really enjoyed uh the film as well um i'm a i i suffice it to say in the 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 feature film realm i am also as big of a fan of I, I as i am of yours on television uh in that realm so um oh, thank yeah. you that's so sweet of you yeah. thank you so much yeah of course of course